hi, it's your friend Ellie, and welcome to Butt Out Baby. Haven't figured out how I'm going to say that yet. Butt Out Baby. Nope, nope, not that. This is a scene by scene recap and analysis of Dirty Dancing, a film that gets a lot of love, but not enough respect. And here is how this is going to work. First, I'll give you a bird's eye view of the scene, then a granular recap, followed by a look at the original screenplay, and I'll cap it all off with a section I'm calling the dramatic argument. Here is your bird's eye view of this very first scene of Dirty Dancing. A family of four drives down the highway en route to a New York State resort called Kellerman's. Through voiceover from the youngest daughter, we learn that this story takes place in the summer of 1963, a time of innocence both in her life and in America. for a very granular recap. As the opening credits fade out, we hear a radio announcer. Hi everybody, this is your cousin Brucey. Whoa, our summer romances are in full bloom and everybody but everybody's in love. So cousins, here's a great song from the Four Seasons. If you didn't catch that, he said, Hi everybody, this is your cousin Brucey. Whoa, our summer romances are in full bloom and everybody, but everybody's in love. So cousins, here's a great song from the Four Seasons. Pig! Sorry. Cousin Brucey was a real DJ, and he actually only retired recently. Also, he plays the magician who saws baby in half later in the movie. Okay, the song by the Four Seasons is Big Girls Don't Cry. And this song... For a very long time, I thought this song was made up for a kid's shampoo because there was this commercial in the 90s where a little girl was having a fun bath time, wiping suds from her face, and you know, not crying about it, while a cover of this song played. Big girls don't cry. There are lots of tear-free shampoos. But now there's a new tear-free shampoo. Don't cry. I was a little mind blown years later when I realized it was an actual song. I wonder why. As the song plays for a few bars, we see the car continue on its way, passing a sign that says New York State Thruway 87. This would be the I-87, which runs north from New York City to Albany. Now we get to see into the car. Before I get to the voiceover, let's take a closer look at the characters. First, we see Baby in the back seat. This is how the screenplay describes her. An endearingly unkempt puppy of a 17-year-old whose face has the unguarded responsiveness of a child. At the moment, she is hunched in her corner. Yes, her corner. And all we see is her shaggy hair, her scruffy sandals, and the book she's reading, The Plight of the Peasant. I love this description. An endearingly unkempt puppy. As a fellow ragamuffin, I feel a certain kinship. 
Baby is a white girl with a distinct nose and a mop of amazing curly hair. Okay, here's the deal. Not only am I not Jewish, but the area of Toronto I grew up in had no real Jewish presence. As a result, I was well into my 20s before I had any understanding that certain physical characteristics were associated with Jewish people. Needless to say, with this close watch, I definitely am now noting the Jewish signifiers in this film, which I'm sure we'll get into all of them as the movie goes on, and how important they were for many people to see. In the 90s, Jennifer Grey, who plays Baby, of course, said in an interview that people loved seeing her as a lead in the film because, quote, I didn't look like a movie star. I had a Jewish nose. Famously, Jennifer Grey got a nose job, two nose jobs actually, after this film, but we'll get into that some other time. Something I always noticed though was Baby's incredible curly hair, and I reached out to my friend Ariana, who is another Jewish woman with incredible curly hair, to get her take. Maybe it's because, you know, the 80s embraced big hair and maybe that helped make it possible. But for me, I think it's pretty great, actually, to see big, unapologetic, curly Jewish hair, not only on an ingenue character, but also someone who turns out to be, you know, a fully evolved heroine who has you know, sexual agency and seen in that way. Oh, man, we will definitely talk about baby's sexual agency in later scenes. But for now, her outfit. And um, as a ragamuffin, I'm not very skilled at describing aesthetics and fashion. So I asked my dear friend Christy, who is also my ex, which is a very lesbian sentence. Anyway, Christy is the person in my life that knows the most about fashion. And so she's going to describe the outfits in the film. Here's her take on Baby's shirt. Okay, so Baby is wearing a button-up shirt. It's white, kind of cream-colored. It looks like it's made of a linen cotton blend. It's like a little bit gauzy. Her sleeves are rolled up. The sleeves are like a tiny bit puffy. They're like a little bit bunched where the arm meets the shoulder. There is red and white embroidery on the front of her shirt going vertically. Two bands of red designs, which to me appears to be floral or like vegetal. There's like leaves, spiral shapes. This is like someone looked at a hippie shirt and then was like, I'm going to put the designs from a hippie shirt on an office shirt. It's sort of caught in between, I would say, freewheeling good times and looking presentable. So that's baby's shirt. She's wearing jean shorts. We don't see her footwear in this scene, but she is indeed reading a book titled The Plight of the Peasant, which as far as I can tell, screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein made up this book, which means that Jennifer Grey is holding a prop book. Is she staring at a blank page? I want to know. The older sister, who we'll meet later as Lisa, is sitting in the back seat beside Baby. She's described in the screenplay as a pretty 19-year-old girl, her hair in rollers, peering into a hand mirror, curling her eyelashes. In this first scene, Lisa's long, dark, straight hair is not in rollers, nor is she curling her eyelashes, which seems like a difficult task in a moving car, but she is primping her bangs with a pink comb while looking into a hand mirror. 
When she finishes, she gives a little head swivel to, you know, check out her angles while seductively touching the comb to her lips. So Lisa appears to be wearing what I would call like an Oxford shirt. Back to Christy, this time describing Lisa's outfit. It's a button-up shirt, fairly tailored, like close-fitting to her body. It looks a little bit silky, but I wouldn't say it's silk. It looks like it's made of like a cotton with like a sateen finish. Originally, I called this color mauve, but now, upon closer inspection or the fact that time has passed and my understanding of color is ever-evolving, I would say that this is lilac, and on her left side, there is embroidery. It's a small white flower design. There's two flowers. They're white. They have little black adornments, I guess, and green leaves, and then the whole thing... The flowers, the leaves, and then this kind of vine that connects them all is sparkly. It's a little bit glitzy. It kind of looks like a brooch, except that it's on the shirt. Something else I'll say that's notable about this outfit versus Baby's outfit is that Lisa is very put together. Like she's wearing jewelry and her nails are done and she has a ribbon in her hair. That's Lisa. And sitting between her and Baby is an opened case of beauty products which, based on all the evidence discussed, we can comfortably conclude is not Baby's. Baby's window is rolled down partway, and her hair blows in the breeze as she stares into the plight of the peasant. I took a real close look at this book, and it does not appear to be a library book. So I'm thinking maybe it's required reading for one of her upcoming college courses. Though I will say that the book jacket cover is pretty damn loose. So maybe Baby just puts this plight of the peasant jacket over books she's embarrassed to be seen reading. Sidebar, my friend Michelle, who I asked to give me feedback on this episode, had a note that as she put it, isn't really feedback, but more of a response, which was that I think Baby would just be trying really hard to read that book, but failing. Like she wouldn't be cynical enough to take the book jacket for an impressive book and put it on a beach read but I can see her really earnestly buying a book about peasants and really thinking she was going to read it, but then just carrying it around without making any progress because she's actually really bored by it, but can't quite admit defeat. Now the parents in the front seat. In the screenplay, dad is simply described as a Brooklyn general practitioner and mom as a pretty-faced 40-ish woman which the man being summarized by his job and the woman by her looks feels accurate to 1963. Dad has short silver hair and is wearing a polo shirt with blue stripes. If you're a certain age, you might recognize dad actor from Law & Order, though admittedly I did not. He forever was the dad from Dirty Dancing, but he was on Law & Order for 12 seasons. And I have it under good authority that dad also has a Jewish nose. As he drives... Dad gives mom a little wink. It's actually quite sweet. We don't get a great look at mom yet, so we'll talk about her more next scene. Nobody is wearing seatbelts, nor do they seem to exist in the car, which, as far as I can tell, is accurate. Cars in the U.S. weren't required to even have seatbelts until 1968, and it didn't become enforceable by law to wear them in New York State until 1984. Um, let's just reflect on this for a moment. Cars became common to own in the 1920s. So, 
It took 40 years to make seatbelts even mandatory in the damn things. Doesn't this make you feel better or at least explain why we still have no idea how to handle social media? She's like the wind through my tree. She rides the night next to me. Without further ado, here is the voiceover along with my descriptions. That was the summer of 1963, when everybody called me Baby and it didn't occur to me to mind. Baby reads her book, Lisa fluffs her bangs and practices her sex eyes, and the car drives towards a green hill. That was before President Kennedy was shot, before the Beatles came, when I couldn't wait to join the Peace Corps. And I thought I'd never find a guy as great as my dad. Baby hugs her dad from behind. Lots of freedom of movement when you're not wearing a seatbelt. He pats her arm and says something. The car drives by the Kellerman sign. That was the summer we went to Kellerman's. That was your recap. And now this section is for the screenplay. As a writer who has dabbled in screenwriting, I find it very interesting and useful to see how a story has changed from page to screen. Screenplays, after all, are different than novels because they are just the blueprint. Not that that makes them easy to write, as you're still responsible for the plot, the tone, the theme that will guide and inspire everyone else involved in the film. This is why I decided on a section where I'll compare the original Dirty Dancing screenplay to the 1987 film we know and love. Well, my friends, this screenplay was not easy to find. It was not online. It was not in a book. But it was on eBay and appeared to be legit. So I ordered the damn thing from the UK for £28. I'll post a photo of it to the show's Instagram, and you'll see it's like someone got a typewritten copy from an auction or something and is selling reprints on eBay. In any case, when you open it up, it says second draft, September 23rd, 1985. I've since seen passages from this draft referenced in a couple academic articles and the Netflix documentary about the making of the film. So this 1985 draft is what I'll be working from too. The opening in the screenplay is very different from the film. The screenplay begins with the Housemans doing a family vote on whether to go to the Catskills, and we only see the character's hands. Lisa has frosted nail polish and a charm bracelet on. She writes yes in a neat italic hand, and draws a little heart around it. Baby has an unmanicured hand and is holding a chewed pencil. She writes, no, nyet, yuck, which is a lot to write down on a ballad. I had assumed nyet meant no in Yiddish, and then I had an important audio message from my friend Rowan and her mom, who is currently taking Yiddish. 
The other important thing was that Nyet is Russian and not Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Mom says Nain is no in Yiddish. Rowan suggested that Baby was probably just saying Nyet to be like fun and sassy and show off the fact that she's been reading Russian literature, which seems like a sound theory. When Baby sees she's outvoted, she flops her head down on the paper ballots. The song in the car is not Big Girls Don't Cry, it's Going to the Chapel, which I feel has a similar clean-cut 1950s vibe. In her screenplay, Eleanor Bergstein lists the songs for every scene, which is somewhat unusual for screenwriting, but it makes sense that she had a clear vision of the music in the film. And she's noted in interviews that when she was sending out the screenplay, she always provided a mixtape, which is pretty cool. In the screenplay, when Baby hears Lisa sing along to going to the chapel, the action line says, Baby winces. This music is clearly not her style. This is a nice, simple bit of character work in the screenplay as it shows the reader Baby's distaste for the mainstream whiteness of songs like Going to the Chapel and Big Girls Don't Cry. Part of the motivation for this, I think, is to set up the contrast between the music of Baby's family and the music of the Kellerman staff, which we'll hear later. In the 1985 screenplay, there's actually a bit of dialogue between Baby and Lisa in the car. And here it is, dramatized by me and me. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. Baby, would you say I was more pretty or attractive? I would say you were more disgusting. Even though this opening scene got completely transformed before they shot it, doesn't mean it's bad writing. All these details contrasting the sisters gives the reader a really good understanding about their positions in the family and towards each other. It was a wise choice, I think, though, to simplify this all with the voiceover. It was really such an effective way to give us a sense of time and place in our main character. It's funny, I often hear voiceover criticized as a cheat or example of hacky writing. And Dirty Dancing not only commits the sin of having voiceover, but it just like randomly disappears after this scene. So it can't even hang its hat on using voiceover as an overarching stylistic choice as in a film like Clueless. I mean, it's just an example of how, as writers, it's not useful to get too obsessive about the so-called rules of screenwriting. If it's good, it's good. And this intro voiceover, which I'm about to really dig into, is fucking elegant. Shout out to Claire Maeve, a.k.a. Claire Whitehead, who did all of the interlude music for this podcast. And when I asked Claire if she would do this, I was like, can you do interpretations of songs from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack? 
And uh, you maybe have clocked this, but Take My Breath Away is not from Dirty Dancing. It's from Top Gun. And when she sent it to me, I uh, was delighted at her mistake. And it's an understandable one because uh, I'm also obsessed with the song Take My Breath Away. It's a masterpiece, people. And so even though this song is definitely not in Dirty Dancing, I am putting it in this show. And let's just, uh, let's listen to it one more time. Welcome to the final part of the episode, a section I'm calling the dramatic argument. I'm borrowing this term from Craig Mazin, one of the hosts of the Script Notes podcast, and I'm using it as a replacement for the word theme. I find that within film and TV analysis, we use the word theme quite broadly. Like, I could say the theme of this opening scene is nostalgia, or summer holidays, or the innocence of youth. Okay, but like, what exactly about these things? In his book, Invisible Ink, Brian McDonald, a writer and teacher, tells a story about a friend of his complaining that he was getting notes on his screenplay that interfered with his theme. Brian asked him what his theme was, and his friend told him that his theme was competition. To quote Brian, saying that your theme is competition is like saying your theme is red. It really says nothing at all. A real theme would be something like competition is sometimes a necessary evil or competition leads to self-destruction. So in place of theme, I'm going to use the phrase dramatic argument. In other words, what point is the film trying to make? I know some people really cringe at this kind of intentional moralizing. I think people worry it's condescending. And that if your story is deep and rich and sturdy, then readers and viewers will draw their own meanings. But I personally find it an interesting challenge as a writer, as it forces me to uncover what I am actually trying to say with my piece of work. And uh, it's a useful tool for analysis. So what I'm going to do is for every scene of Dirty Dancing make my case for that scene's dramatic argument. Okay, here we go. But first, a reminder of the voiceovers. Say it with me now. That was the summer of 1963 when everyone called me baby and it didn't occur to me to mind. That was before President Kennedy was shot, before the Beatles came, when I couldn't wait to join the Peace Corps and I thought I'd never find a guy as great as my dad. That was the summer we went to Kellerman's. Okay, here's my take on scene one's dramatic argument. The summer of 1963 was the cusp of a great change both in American culture and baby's life. Okay, that one was a little easy as it's basically spelled out in the voiceover. The later scenes are, I imagine, going to be more subjective. But let's take a look at this. Let's start with that first sentence. That was the summer of 1963 when everybody called me baby and it didn't occur to me to mind. This line establishes that the story is from the past, from a time when the protagonist was young and naive. Saying that it didn't occur to her to mind being called baby 
raises the notion that maybe she should have minded, but she was both young and it was a different time. 1963 was before second wave feminism hit the mainstream. I recently actually listened to the newly released, never before published novel by Simone de Beauvoir, which was really good, I thought, and Margaret Atwood wrote the intro. And in the intro, Atwood said that in 1964, she would read The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir in the bathroom so no one would ever see her doing it. That's how taboo feminism was in her environment a year after the events of Dirty Dancing. Now, The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan had been out a few months before the summer of 1963. And folks definitely see that book as being instrumental for white, middle-class American women's feminism. And I do like to think that Baby's mom had been reading it during their stay at Kellerman's, and it empowered her shining moment near the end of the film. Sit down, Jake. Sit down, Jake. In any case, at the time Dirty Dancing is set, organized feminism has not infiltrated Baby's life. And if Baby had been active in feminism, which it's not a stretch to imagine she would be if given the opportunity, she might have found the nickname Baby as infantilizing and maybe even sexualizing, i.e. it would have occurred to her to mind. I mean, it's definitely a strange nickname for your teenage daughter, but we're glad it's there as Penny gets in that iconic burn at the end of the first act. Go back to your playpen, baby. Go back to your playpen, baby. Some of you may already know that screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein's own nickname was Baby back when she was a teen and visiting resorts like Kellerman's. As this voiceover wasn't originally in the screenplay, I commend whomever for making the note to comment on the nickname itself as it helps frame the story as a portrait of youth. When people talk about a time that was before this or before that, the beforeness tends to be referencing a period of calm and or ignorance. That was before I knew my partner was cheating. That was before 9-11. That was before I'd ever had a cup of good tea. Particularly relevant to my life as a non-coffee drinker, I didn't have a morning ritual before I discovered tea. So what exactly is the quality of this before time for baby? Well, I came across this interesting 1987 review of Dirty Dancing in the New York Times by Samuel G. Friedman, and here's what he said of the film. It stands as a metaphor for America in the summer of 1963. Orderly, prosperous, bursting with good intentions, a sort of Yiddish-inflected Camelot. Before this episode, my associations with Camelot were pretty nebulous. I knew the Sword in the Stone Disney movie. I also had a vague feminist sense that the witch in the story was unnecessarily villainized. Though I did learn an interesting tidbit recently while listening to How the French Invented Love by Marilyn Yalom, which is that Lancelot, you know, the knight that has an affair with Queen Guinevere, is fanfic. As in, the Camelot legends are so old 
that people have been playing around with the characters for centuries. And in the 12th century, a French countess ordered her troubadour to write a Camelot love story. And she was like, it can't be between Guinevere and Arthur because everyone knows marriage is just political and not romantic. So her troubadour invented Lancelot. But illicit affairs is not the Camelot vibe that the New York Times writer is talking about, of course. As I came to understand it, Camelot symbolizes equality, you know, the round table and all that. And it's a kingdom of optimism and fierce pride in one's leader. I actually have some eyewitnesses to this Camelot vibe in the form of my parents. They are both white, middle-class Americans from Baby's Generation. As you know, they're not Jewish, and also they would probably note, are not from the East Coast. They're from the Midwest. Though this does make them and Baby Northerners, which will continue to be relevant as the series goes on. Here is what they had to say about being kids after America's triumph in World War II. The thing essentially being presented to us was that America was the greatest country in the world. Everybody wished they could come to America and be Americans. Myself, being a little kid in the 1950s, that was just something we absorbed. We'd play soldier, you know, saving people. Uh, another piece I just wanted to add in terms of the 1950s in well, I guess probably it would be all of North America, certainly in the States, is we didn't feel the after effects of the war. You know, unlike Europe, which was destroyed. And people our age growing up in Europe, I think it would have felt somewhat different. There's this idea of America the good, that everything we did was for the good. If we sent the military someplace, that was good because we were helping people. So we're in Camelot and JFK is king. But the thing I learned about Camelot is that it always falls. And that's what Baby's voiceover is describing to us. This was the summer before things went to shit. I obviously wasn't alive when JFK was shot, and I'm also Canadian, but if you've spent any significant amount of years consuming American media, you'll get the impression that this assassination was a very big deal. Kennedy was young and inspiring and symbolized progress. He was this America the good my dad was talking about. So him getting murdered was absolutely terrifying. I recently listened to Katherine Johnson's memoir. She was the mathematician featured in the book and film Hidden Figures, the untold story of the black women that helped win the space race. And she has a passage in her book about when she heard about JFK being shot. The news seemed to suck the air from the room and drain the blood from my face as I sat there speechless. Someone had murdered the President of the United States. In my heart, I knew why. The Kennedy brothers had been allies in our people's fight for freedom. She goes on to describe some of the brothers' work and the support they received from the Black community. And then Johnson ends with, For a long while, the world just didn't feel safe.
That was before President Kennedy was shot, before the Beatles came. I had always just assumed that the significance of the Beatles coming was just another cultural thing that baby boomers fought about with their parents. In particular, the Beatles' haircuts, which my mom did have something to say about. I still remember the first boy, he was in Newhall, Iowa, who had a Beatles haircut. And he was on the boys' basketball team, and we were agog, just agog. But as she continued talking, I realized it was a lot bigger than that. I just remember driving the car with my sister, and some of their music came on, and there was something about the Beatles that just sounded different. I think there was something a bit exotic because they were from England. Like, I was born in 49, my sister in 46. I mean, we're just like peak boomer generation. And they came in, and then especially then when they just started exploring, like, Eastern religion and just started doing more and more innovative things and this sense of there's a bigger world out there. Before JFK was shot before the Beatles came, and then Baby says, when I couldn't wait to join the Peace Corps. Remember that New York Times review said that the summer of 1963 was bursting with good intentions? Eleanor Bergstein was also quoted in that review, and she said, I meant dirty dancing to be a celebration of the time of your life when you could believe that a kind of earnest, liberal action could remake the world in your own image. Enter the Peace Corps. This was a new and exciting program created by JFK where college grads volunteer abroad for two years. I asked my parents what they thought of the Peace Corps at the time. As a young team, I remember having a Peace Corps brochure and there was just a sense of Americans can go out and help build a better world. And that was a channel being presented to young people. And the nature of the times when we grew up, there was no critiquing <laughs> of whether or not that was being done the right way or the right thing to do at the times. Mom, what was your impression of the Peace Corps? Uh, yeah, they had another program called VISTA, which was uh, you did in the U.S. and it was only a year long. But it's kind of the same idea. I actually joined VISTA. Mm -hmm. And at the last minute pulled out, like I had even, it was funny, I, someplace I still have the telegram and I was going to go to Appalachia and save those poor mountain people. <laughs> the Iowans. Yeah. yeah. Clearly I found it amusing to think of my rural Iowan mom as having any kind of elitism. But Iowa is a Northern state as is New York. And it's not exactly a hot take to say that in the U.S. there can be a northern judgment of the South, that the South is backwards, that the South can learn from the North in the same way that the rest of the world can learn from the United States. When I couldn't wait to join the Peace Corps tells us, as Bergstein puts it, about Baby's belief in earnest liberal action, as liberalism is about reforming and sometimes reinforcing the system, definitely not overthrowing it or radically challenging it. The Peace Corps is the perfect outlet for a young woman like Baby who is inspired 
by her country's leaders, including her father. Eleanor Bergstein also talks about how the summer of 1963 is the last summer of liberalism. Because just a few months after the events of the film, the U.S. administration sanctions a coup in South Vietnam, JFK is killed, the Beatles arrive, and an act of racial terrorism results in the deaths of four black girls. After that summer, white progressives can no longer turn away from the country's dysfunction. I say white progressives because obviously many groups like indigenous and black folks are already well aware at the realities of their country. Here's my dad again explaining how things began to shift. The awakening began, particularly among young people, that something's wrong here. There are some structural problems. It's not enough to say nice things. We have to change the way we structure society. We have to change the way we structure politics in order to solve some of the problems being put right in front of our faces, like racial discrimination, like American imperialism about military involvement in the affairs of other countries. It was that period of the beginning of the emergence of more radical thinking, and then that burst loose in the mid and late 60s. There's one more important line in Baby's voiceover. And I thought I'd never find a guy as great as my dad. For a long time, I thought this was just a simple nod to our main character being a daddy's girl, a concept I'm sure we'll unpack further in this series. But in one of my conversations with my mom, she reminded me that nearly all the dads at this time were World War II vets. I didn't know any dad that had not fought in World War II. And so all the dads were heroes. So basically, there was a real cultural motivation to be a daddy's girl. I can only imagine even more so as a Jewish girl considering the context of World War II. This raises the stakes even more when Baby and her father's relationship breaks down. Because it's not just Baby and Jake's relationship on shaky ground, it's the entirety of 1950s paternalism. And finally, Baby ends with, that was the summer we went to Kellerman's. Wow. It uh, feels like a lot of shit is going to go down at Kellerman's this summer. And that's it. This voiceover helps us understand that we're at the cusp of all this change. And that's so juicy because it really means that we're at the beginning of a story. Wow, thank you for listening to the entire episode. I shall reward you with some intel. Do, do, do. My plan is to do a debrief episode following each scene episode. In the debrief, I'll talk about the choices I made when putting together the episode, what I decided to cut and why, and more about my sources. And if there are interesting listener comments and questions, I'll read those too. If you want to send me a reflection, question, or comment about this episode, about this scene, please email ellie at buttoutbaby.com. And finally, I need to thank several people for their help on this very first episode that took me like two years. 
Anna Weinveen did the theme music, Claire Maeve did all the rest of the music, Veronica Simmons gave some crucial notes, and thank you to Michelle, Matt, Ariana, Christy, Helen, Oliver Whitehead, Andrew, Rowan, and of course, my parents. 